some of you may know that in a few weeks' time, uh, in the school holidays, uh, we're going away on a holiday to Melbourne, and uh, it's uh, getting very exciting. Uh, I haven't bought my uh, football tickets yet, but I'm looking forward to hopefully watching Sydney maybe win again uh, when they play Richmond, who might be just bad enough uh, for, for us to get the win up in person. Uh, we've got uh, tickets to see the Matildas playing, uh, the last game before the World Cup starts. Uh, Elise is going to the theatre. Uh, we've got all sorts of uh, fun things fun things planned with the kids, friends to see, family to catch up with. Uh, it's going to be a great trip. wonder if you uh, have a, a similarly uh, planned holiday coming up sometime in the future. Holidays or other plans we make for the future can be great to look forward to, can't they? And the way that the book of Isaiah rounds out is by taking the, the eyes uh, and the hearts and the minds of, of the people of God in Isaiah's time who uh, are about to experience the judgment of God of exile uh, and, when, and then when they're in exile, uh, it takes their minds forward to a future time of hope and joy, a little like a holiday can do for us when we're slaving away uh, in our nine-to-five job, thinking of the joy we'll have by the pool in some hot, nice place. God's future, though, of course, is far greater than any holiday. But before we see what uh, God uh, promises for the, God's people in the future, uh, I want to just recap, because this is the last week uh, of our series in the book of Isaiah, uh, and it's been a, a, a long, if not kind of brief, journey. We started off way back in the first five chapters, like the, the uh, opening prologue of the book, where we, heard, we saw that God is a God of justice. And his justice and his judgment is going to come on the evil that is in this world. And that's good news. And we were encouraged to trust it. But we also saw in those opening chapters and then through the next section, which we looked at from 6 to 12, that in the midst of judgment, there is hope. That God will come to bring judgment on those who have sinned against him. But for those who stay faithful, who continue to trust in him, there is still some hope. So we read in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse and from his roots a branch that will bear fruit. God is not going to be done with his people even though he's going to judge them for his sin. There's still going to be hope. There's going to be a way back into relationship with him. Then we saw how God's judgment is actually a, a victory over sin and evil. God is going to judge not just uh, God's people for their sin, but all the nations. And in doing so, he brings about victory. Victory over evil and injustice, over all those things we look at in our world and go, ah, oh, why is it like that? In God's future, he will be victorious over it all. And so he read in Isaiah 25, verse 9, In that day they will say, Surely this is our God, we trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. God comes, he judges uh, the sin in this world, he brings an end to the injustice, and he saves those 
who trust in him, who seek to be faithful and do what is right. We need God's victory because we can't win this battle ourselves. And God's people learn that the hard way, don't they? That, that they can't get out of the, 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 the exile by themselves. They need God to come and to make a way for them to escape. And this is really where the book then pivots from chapter 40 onwards, where it's an encouragement that even though God's going to bring judgment and the people are going to go into exile, God's not going to leave them there. He promises them that exile will only be for a time and then he will come and give them a new gift, a gift of new life or of refreshing water. Isaiah 44 verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. And last week we saw the method by which God gives this gift of, of life to those who trust in him, to those who are waiting for God to, to bring restoration to a dry and parched land. The way God's going to do that is through the ministry of the servant, the suffering servant, who we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. God's suffering servant stands in our place, pays the price for our sin, and opens the gateway for the living water of refreshment to pour into our lives and our lands. The invitation then we saw at the end of last week was to come to the servant, to come to Jesus. As I put it like this in chapter 55, come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near, let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts, let them turn to the Lord, for he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. God wants you to come to him, to come to his servant Jesus, to experience new life, to be freed from exile, separation from God. And now, as we conclude this journey, the, the, the message of Isaiah moves to the future, what is to come? What, what, what is the future for the, for the one who trusts? For the one who sees the work of the servant, sees the work of Christ on the cross, suffering in our place, paying the price for our sins. Where is God's future? Well, we see that from the, in the final 10 chapters. And the section opens with this idea of the new future been uh, one where the whole of the earth is God's kingdom living under God's rule and reign in perfection. Everyone is invited to this new kingdom. We see that 
in chapter 56, in verses 1 to 8, let me just read to you from verse 8. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. And then at the end, in chapter 66, verse 18, And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather, all, gather the people of all nations and, and languages, and they will come and see my glory. And verse 23 of chapter 66, from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. In God's perfect future, everyone will worship the Lord. Everyone will bow to him and everyone will enjoy God's perfection forever. But in the meantime, we have to wait God's people have to wait. They're still going to need to repent and to do what is right. And that's the message of chapter, the second half of chapter 56 right through to chapter 58. That the, the, the people of God, as they wait for uh, this future he has promised where God's perfect rule and reign is established on the earth forever... People have to repent of their sin and seek to be faithful to God while they wait. So chapter 58, verses 11 to 14, we read, The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will re rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God will guide and lead his people to this promised future if they don't do things their own way, but rather turn to him and trust in him. And that's hard to do. The book of Isaiah has taught us that, right? God's people are not very good at it. That's why they have to go into exile. That's why they're judged. And so in chapter 59, we have this prayer of repentance. We know what the people have to do, but we know they're not going to do it very well, and so they need to be a people of continual repentance while they wait for the future. Verse 12 of chapter 59, For our offences are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on God, inciting revolt and oppression, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. And their salvation comes not from their act of repentance, but through God's grace. Verse 15 of chapter 59, the Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. God has to bring salvation. It's the, 
that's the act and the, and the work of the servant, you'll remember if you were here last week, who stands in our place and pays the price for our sin. And so as God in his grace brings about a way for us to be saved so that we can come by faith into right relationship with him and look forward to the future, we have this promise of a new covenant. Verse 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you will not depart from you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will always be on your lips, on the lips of your children and the lips of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. God not only will save them, not only will uh, cause them to change, but he will do it in a different way to how he has done it before. They will never go to exile again because their hearts and their minds will have been transformed by the Spirit. And that, of course, leads to the climax of the book, which is in chapters 60 to 62, which is the announcement of God's kingdom and the promise of what this future is going to look like. God's people are going to live in perfect harmony, in perfect justice, in God's city, where God's glory is going to shine brightly and everyone from every nation is going to gather to worship God forever. It's a beautiful picture and I encourage you to read it. But for now, let me just quote to you from just part of it in chapter 62. Uh, verses 10 to 12. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your saviour come, see your reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. It's a beautiful picture and John read it for us as well today in our reading. And then as uh, we then move from that, the high point in the centre there, uh, we get a, a repeat of the themes we've already seen me leading up. You'll remember way back if you were here in week one, I talked about how Isaiah is a book of poetic prophecy. And really these last ten chapters are what we call a giant uh, chiasm which is uh, a, a literary device used in the Old Testament in particular uh, where a sequence of ideas are presented to, leading to a high point and then they're represented in reverse order so that, you, so that they kind of work like an arrow leading up to the high point. And so what we see again as we go back from this high point is prayers of repentance in chapters 63 to 64 the need for the people in chapters 65 to 66 to live righteously and the promise of this future where everyone is invited at the end of chapter 66. Well, what does all of this mean for us? we find ourselves as Christians a little further along the timeline than the people did in Isaiah's day. But we still are waiting like they were. 
And I've got a picture for you today to try and get your head around um, how this works in the scriptures. Uh, you can see it there. Isaiah is prophesying back in, in where it's this age, before the yellow line intersects with the blue line there. He's prophesying about a future where uh, God will pay the price for, his, uh, for the people's sins, where God will make a way through the suffering servant for people to have their sins forgiven and a right relationship restored, where God will pour out his spirit on the people so that they'll be able to, to live righteously and where then God will create a, a new city and a new heavens and a new earth where everyone will live with him forever. And of course... Jesus has come, the suffering servant has come and that has inaugurated many of these promises of God but not all of them. The age to come that Isaiah is prophesying about has come in part in Christ's first coming but not in, in totality until he returns. It's if you like the surprise of the New Testament. And we live then, not in the age of sin, if you want to call it that, prior to Christ's coming, nor in the age of perfection, when Christ will come again, but in the now but not yet, where both are a reality at the same time. We know who the suffering servant king is, but we're still waiting for him, for Jesus, to return and completely establish his kingdom on earth. And so we can read in Revelation of our future hope. Revelation 21 verse 1 through 7, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I'll be their God and they will be my children. Sounds like Isaiah, doesn't it? Sounds particularly like Isaiah 65 verse 17 to 25 that John read for us earlier today. The new heavens and the new earth is perfect, free from sin. And those who live there are refreshed with living water, enjoy our relationship with God as his children in all its fullness and perfection. As Christians, this is true for us now in Christ, but also we await its total and final fulfilment. That's what it is to live in this in-between time between Christ's first and second coming. 
In John's letter, he writes this, 1 John 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We are children of God now, but there's more to come. And a scholar from Westminster Theological Seminary called David, I'm going to say his name wrong, Briones, B-R-I-O-N-E-S, he really helpfully lays out this uh, now but not yet uh, tension that we have throughout the New Testament. He says, the scriptures teach us that we are already adopted in Christ in Romans 8.15, but yet not yet adopted in Romans 8.23. We are already redeemed in Christ, Ephesians 1.7, but not yet redeemed, Ephesians 4.30. We are already sanctified in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.2, but not yet sanctified, 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24. We are already saved in Christ, Ephesians 2.8, but not yet saved, Romans 5.9. We are already raised with Christ, Ephesians 2.6, but not yet raised, 1 Corinthians 15.52. We have God's future now in Christ and we await its final fulfilment when Christ returns. The people of God in Isaiah's day's hope is our hope too. We've seen that what Isaiah prophesied is true. God has begun to do what Isaiah said he would do. He has sent his servant, Jesus, to suffer for us, to pay the price for our sin, to inaugurate his kingdom on earth. And yet, we wait for him to come back and put an end, finally, to all the injustice and sin in our world. I don't know why it's like that. But I do know I'm glad that God has waited so that I could meet him. All of us have an invitation to God's future through Jesus Christ, the suffering king. All of us can know for sure what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and wait with certain hope for what he has promised to finish when he returns. So let us rejoice. Rejoice in what God has done and remain hopeful for what is to come. Isaiah helps us make sure and certain of that hope because we know what God promised to do he has done in Christ and he will complete when he returns. Amen. Amen.